Good morning, beloved. <laughs> My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the members of the teaching team here. I'm privileged to be a part of that team and a privileged to be a part of this church. It's so nice to be able to be a part of a church, whereas you're in here and you watch people walk in, every one of them, you're glad to see them here. Amen? So today we're going to continue in our study of Malachi. Now last week, Kateri informed me it's pronounced Malachi, but he was actually Italian. So <clears throat> I looked that up, and the, the uh, theologians disagree with that because they said if he was Italian, the book would have been one sentence, which was to the Israelites, hey, what's the matter you? And so they were pretty sure it was not that. <laughs> Very loose translation. Amen. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your children, yet again in need to know who you are and who we are in you. We choose to open our minds and our hearts to the leading and teaching of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I am just a vessel who knows nothing, but you know all things. And so we pray that you would prepare us to receive your word into our hearts, that we might be even further transformed into the image and likeness of your Son, our Lord and Savior, who goes by the name of Jesus. And it's for in his name we pray. Amen and amen. So we're in Malachi 1, verses 6 through 14. And it reads, A son honors his father, and servants their master. If then I am a father, where is the honor due me? And if I am a master, where is the respect to do me, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? You say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. And you say, how have we polluted it? By thinking that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not wrong? And when you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not wrong? Try presenting that to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now implore the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. The fault is yours. Will he show any favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that someone among you would shut the temple doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and the food for it may be despised. What a weariness this is, you say, and you sniff at me, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in the flock and vows to give it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is reverenced among the nations. So as Julie pointed out last week, this book or word from the Lord was basically the last word from the Lord to the Jews 
for about 420 years. This is what they've been living with ever since, a reprimand. Not all prophetic utterances were necessarily reprimands. Some were also sometimes messages of hope, as we'll see in the book of Malachi, but not in this section. I like to think of this message uh, from Malachi in more contemporary terms. I think they were receiving feedback, as we could also call an intervention. One of the more powerful techniques of an intervention is for those closest to the addict to talk in terms of how the addict's behavior affects them. Well, God is doing something similar, so let's look for that in this passage. The biggest obstacle to, removing, uh, to receiving feedback is defensiveness. So let's see if they are open or closed to God's feedback, because ultimately this is actually about closeness. I also tend to look at interactions between God and man as negotiations. Now, the word negotiation literally means not leisure. And more pragmatically, it means coming to an agreement or the establishment of a relationship, whether it's short-term or long-term. We have been and are being offered a quid pro quo, which is a fancy way of saying, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. So we'll look for that in this passage as well, as God is viewing their behavior in terms of a quid pro quo that he has offered. There's also a theme related, or themes related to aroma and purity and honor and pleasure versus weariness, pollution, profaneness, and despising. So while this message was delivered over 2,400 years ago, we might see there are parallels for us even today, which might surprise us, so we'll look for that as well. So we'll go back to the sixth verse, which says, A son honors his father, and servants serve a master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect, he says, to the priest who despise his name? So he starts this section with something with which they are already familiar, their tendency to honor others in certain relationships. The idea of honoring, by the way, isn't something necessarily we do naturally, is it? It's something we are taught to do. We learn to do that. Most kids don't naturally start honoring their parents, but rather some often do the opposite, depending on the parenting technique. I'm often amazed how some kids will go overboard in dishonoring their parents. How did they get that way? No consequences for doing so. So wouldn't it be the same for a servant-master relationship? It would be something that would be a learned thing. The honor comes not necessarily because the master has earned or deserves any honor, but because the employee, I mean servant, knows it's better to honor those who have their future in their hands. I see this all the time in my work. People will show deference or respect to a boss whom they otherwise think is an idiot. So we might read this first verse here, the sixth verse, as saying, if a son honors his father out of fear, or a servant honors their master out of fear, then I, the Lord, must conclude you must not fear me because you don't honor me. And if there's anyone or anything that we should fear, it would be God and God alone. This year in Men in Christ, we're studying Proverbs. We're still in the first chapter. I think we got through like six verses the first night. And the seventh verse tells us about how to gain wisdom. And I think many of you already know the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. 
So it seems to me, as God is saying, if we're not honoring His name, by default, we are despising His name. There's no gray area with God, is there? That's why we here at New Hope Chapel, we lift the name of the Lord. We believe on the name of the Lord. We do not use His name in vain, but rather we sing praises to the name of the Lord, and we ask Him to honor His name among our congregation. Right? That's what we do here. And then he goes on to say, You say, how have we despised your name? As Julie taught us last week, God is, they're using a uh, question-answer motivation technique. I call it forestalling objections. It's a negotiation technique. It's a way of creating high impact on people by bringing up their objections before they do. You see, it doesn't say, and the priest said to God, but rather God says to the priest. You've heard this during commercials where an announcer says, now you're probably thinking right now this is going to cost too much, but wait, if you act now, it'll pay for itself in a year. See, God knows what they are thinking, and their thinking is defensive. God knows what we are thinking, and we see that when he becomes man, We see this happen in a lot of different places in Scripture. Those are just a few where it says, and Jesus knew what they were thinking. And they're thinking, we're not doing anything wrong. We're doing everything just the way we were told to. Everything we're doing is perfect. We would never intentionally do anything wrong. And so God tells them, because you were offering polluted food on my altar. So this word in the Hebrew of all means sully, defiled, or desecrated. What's of interest here is this same word can also be used to refer to redemption, as was the case in Ruth that David covered for us. However, in this usage, the same word which could mean redemption now turns into sully, defiled, or desecrated. And then he goes on, and you say, how have we polluted it? This sort of innocent kind of thing, forestalling their objections before they can bring it up. He sees them as defensive. It occurs to me, as we read Malachi, God knows and notices everything. But I'm just wondering if there's anyone here like me who sometimes wonders if God really cares, or is he too distant? Is he really paying attention, or is my little life not that important to him? And God answers, I'm always listening to you, I'm watching what you're doing. But he answers them, how have we polluted? He says, by thinking... The Lord's table may be despised. Wow. Despised. Pretty strong language, isn't it? Despising his table. We could also read words like contemptible or the original, which is to think to scorn. Doesn't even require an action. Just to think that way. It's very strong language. God here is using a negotiation technique. For those who don't know me, I basically teach negotiation for a living, so I always see these things from this perspective which helps me understand, he's using a technique called reframing. Reframing is a technique where you help people see something from a different perspective. When we first got married and started decorating our homes, we'd get a print of something, and I just want to put a regular black frame around it, and my wonderful, beautiful wife would show me, if you change the mat and the frame, the whole thing will look different. And she was right. God's trying to get them to see something from a different perspective. In this case, his perspective. So the priests had apparently become lackadaisical. They had taken a good enough approach, or as we used to say in my government days, close enough for government work. A guy named Frank Sonnenberg put it this way, complacency is the enemy of success. 
So God is pointing out those things that you've deemed unimportant or not that critical are of extreme importance to me. And he's saying the way that you are behaving is telling me how you really feel, which tells me how you really think, which tells me what you really believe, which is based on the perception that you formed about the situation that you're in. And the perception you formed about the situation you're in is completely wrong. You bring stuff to my table, which reflects your thinking about my name, and I can see you don't understand the situation you're in. And I think it's interesting God connects his name with his table as though they're the same thing. In other words, how we behave with respect to sacrifice reveals how we think about God's name and therefore what we believe about God. Now, today, I think when we would say the Lord's table, we would be thinking something like this, the Lord's table, and surely that wouldn't happen today. But if we go to 1 Corinthians 11, we read similar things were happening. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. And he goes on to say that you need to make sure that you are checking yourself, looking at yourself before you relate to God. So, in other words, while we're thinking, what I'm doing is really no big deal, it's just a small piece of gossip, or it's a small little lie, or I'm really just judging them from a distance, I'm not really hurting them. God takes a drastically different view of that, doesn't he? To him, it's contemptible, despicable, reprehensible, disgraceful, shameful. Sacrifice means coming near. See, sacrifice, when we typically think of sacrifice, we think of giving up stuff, right? But it was not just giving up stuff to give up stuff. It was giving up stuff, removing stuff, so that you could be closer, that you could come near. When we don't feel close to God, it's usually not because he's distant, but because we're distant. We have some barrier, some unconfessed sin, something is unclean or polluted in our lives. Remove those barriers. Confess your sins to God and ask for forgiveness, and he will be close to you because he wants to be close to you as you want to be close to him. And we go in the 8th verse to see, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not wrong when you offer those that are lame or sick? Is that not wrong? What makes it so wrong anyway? They're sacrificing something. Well, first, the law in Leviticus was very explicit regarding how the sacrifice was to be made. The animals had to be pure, unblemished, perfect in every way. This, of course, from an economic standpoint, meant something interesting. God was asking him to sacrifice that which was of most value to them, their most valuable asset, 
they had to offer to God, and they could keep that which was of lesser value or left over. This was God's quid pro quo, this for that. If you give me the very best of what you have, then I, God, will give you the very best of what I have. Now, it shouldn't take us too long to think the very best of what you have compared to the best of what God has is not even close. I often wonder, how can you not take this deal? It's like I'm watching Shark Tank. Take the deal, take the deal, it's a good deal. (laughs) No, think about that. I think I'll keep what I have. The second reason this was wrong is that keeping the best for themselves reflected a lack of faith that God would keep his side of the deal. There's a saying we've all all heard, one person's trash is one person's treasure. To God, one person's trash is trash to him. (laughs) One person's treasure is treasure to him. So the question becomes, are we depending on our ability to care for ourselves? keeping the best for ourselves, or are we trusting and depending on God? And then he goes on to say, you try presenting that to your governor. See how that'll go for you. So Again, forestalling objections before they can say, we treat everybody like that. No, you don't. When dealing with others, you treat them with more honor than you treat me. I'm often amused with the level of admiration we have in our country with regard to celebrities. You know, I see people fawning all over them, wanting to get their intention, their endorsement, their time, and so on. You know, I thought Shaquille O'Neal was a basketball player. I did not know he was an expert in car insurance. But apparently the general wants his endorsement. You know, the more time that I spend in prayer and worship and studying the scriptures, and I could do more of all that, the less I'm impressed with celebrities. Because I know the biggest celebrity of all time. I have his direct line. Whenever I call him, he always answers every single time. I hope you know him too. And then when the more you know him, the less these other people who now want to talk about foreign policy because they did a good act in a movie, you won't pay attention to him as much. And so he says, and now you're going to implore the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. So Malachi is using this obvious irony. In the previous verse, he says, uh, he uses the example of a governor. You wouldn't treat your own boss with contempt the way you treat me, only because he has the power to judge you, and yet you treat me with the utmost disrespect. And I am the ultimate judge of all the earth. So up to this point, Malachi has only referred to the Lord as Lord. And now in this verse, we see him shift the title to God. And to the Jews, this is an important thing. It might seem subtle to us, but to them, using that title, you're referring now to the judge of all the earth. And so all of a sudden, you treat the judge of all the earth with contempt, but your own human judges, you're all afraid of them. So God is using a technique here called big partner. (laughs) I'm the judge of all the earth. He's using it in a very unique and purposeful way because he's trying to move them into what is called collaborative negotiation where we both win, a relationship based uh, on faith, hope, and love as Julie talked about in the previous chapter. But he's also referring, again, to a previously negotiated agreement in Genesis 17 and refers to their part of the deal. 
It says, God said to Abraham, as for you, your part of the agreement, you shall keep faithfully the terms of my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. So Malachi is referring to the third and fourth covenants made through Moses with the Levitical priesthood, whom he's now accusing or giving feedback to. And this is outlined in a number of places in the Old Testament. So he's basically pointing out to them, you want me to keep my side of the deal. You want me to show you favor and honor and bless you, but here's the problem. You haven't kept your side of the deal. And by the way, as I said, it's a completely lopsided deal to begin with. Look, God's saying, I've asked, you, I've asked you to give me something I don't even need so that I can in return meet all of your needs, but not greed's. I still want to bless you, but your attitude, your behavior prevent me from doing so because I cannot deny myself. Yes, I love you, but I'm also holy. And so then he continues on to say, the fault is not mine. The fault is yours. It's not that God doesn't want to bless us, but rather we prevent him. Their own behavior is hurting them. The very thing upon which they've placed their hope and trust is turning out to be their own demise. God doesn't really need to punish us. We punish ourselves. He's trying to get us to stop doing that. Walk in doubt and fear and skepticism, and life stands still. Walk in faith and hope and love, and the blessings are poured out. And you can see the frustration at this point because God says, oh, that someone would just shut the whole place up, shut the temple doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. You know, sometimes in order to be able to move forward, you have to stop. You have to stop doing that which you've been doing, which is not working. Most people are familiar with something Einstein said, if you keep doing what you've always been doing and you're expecting different results, you're insane. He said it another way. He said, if you think you're going to solve your current problems with the same thinking you used when you created them, you're still insane. You're simply wasting your time. You're not getting anywhere, but you'll keep doing it over and over. So where are you in your relationship with the Lord? I'm sure many of you here are in close, constant connection with the Lord and you enjoy the benefit of the presence of God which results for you in a sense of peace and contentment, a tendency towards natural godliness, naturally loving others more and more and gaining in confidence. If, on the other hand, you're not where you would like to be, then write this down. I'm going to stop what I've been doing and how I relate to God and to others, and I'm going to start trusting Him more, talking with Him more, thinking about Him more, worshiping Him with abandon, and so on. Apparently, no one stepped forward to lock the doors of the temple, so God did it Himself. In the year 70, He allowed it to be destroyed so that all that nonsense would stop. No more kindling of secondary leftover stuff. And he says in the rest of that verse, I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hands. So I looked up the Hebrew word there for pleasure, and it's pleasure. (laughs) Pleasure. He's saying 
I'm not enjoying this relationship. It's all one-sided. And by the way, the literal phrase for the idea of sacrifice is, or offering is, as I said before, is to bring close. I want to really drive that home. It's about being close. It says, God is saying to them, you are bringing things that are not pure close to me, and as a result, you're not getting close to me. Isn't it interesting that God also is saying that he wants to take pleasure in us? He wants to be pleased with us. The last part of that verse, I will not accept an offering from your hand. And the the Hebrew would read more like, we are not going to be close. And I want to. So how do we give God pleasure? In what does God delight? I'm hoping some verses are coming into your head. What impresses God? Well, I think of the Roman soldier, don't you? who approached Jesus and asked for help, and he began to go, and the Roman soldier said, you don't need to come with me, just say the word, and it will be done, because I know who you are. And what did Jesus say? I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And then we read in Hebrews, it's only faith that pleases God. Any specific kind of faith? Yeah, faith in his son. That's the only way you can please him. All the other stuff you do, it's not going to work. The theme is always the same. Trust and faith. And so he, then he goes on, for, the rising, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name. A pure offering, for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So this is an intriguing verse here. When he says, my name is great among the nations, it's interesting phrasing because for the Jews, this would be very strong feedback. Because when the, and the Bible talks about a nation, we're usually talking about the nation of Israel. So when he says, my name is great among the nations, guess who he's also talking about? Gentile nations. So when God says, my, great, my name is great among the nations, referring to Gentile nations, this is a pretty big slap in the face. My name isn't great in the nation of Israel. My nation is great in all the nations. But at this time, God's name was not great among the Gentile nations. Think about that for a second. So why is he saying my name is great among the nations when at that time it wasn't? So most scholars think at this point what God is doing is he's he's stepping out of time and he's referring to their future, which would be his present. And there's some evidence for this as we go to 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. It says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one of fragrance from death to death to another of fragrance from life to life. So what I want to point out here is that in Malachi it says in every place incense and then we go down to second corinthians and it says in every place the fragrance do you ever think of yourself as a fragrance as an aroma of christ to god second corinthians is saying you already are if you are in jesus you are already a fragrance now here's a great time for me to succumb to the temptation of putting all kinds of pressure and guilt on you 
to go out and be smell more, you know, go out and do this kind of thing, because you have to do this and do that. That's not what the scripture is saying. Here's why I think that John said, I baptize with water. But one is coming who baptizes with fire. And what does fire do? It burns stuff up. And when it burns stuff up, smoke comes and there's an aroma. See, when you ask Jesus into your life, and by the way, if you've not done that, (laughs) if he comes into your life, he's going to set you on fire like we sang in the song. So what's he burning up? He's burning up all the stuff that still remains in our lives between us and the Lord. And when the Lord smells that to him, it's a sweet aroma. It's a pleasing aroma to him. Last year, we studied apologetics in Men in Christ, and um, we studied a lot of atheists, read what they had to say, watched some videos. And even though they didn't believe in God in general, every single one of them seemed to have the biggest problem with Christianity. Not big of a problem with other religions, but man, Christianity, they kept going after Christianity all the time. And I kind of conclude that for the atheists, we must really stink up the place. (laughs) And then he says, you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and the food may be despised. They're bringing the second best, that which was left over. The nature of my work, I don't have any income withheld. I pay quarterly estimated taxes. What if I decided to just go ahead and spend my money all year willy-nilly and on April 15th, well, here's what I got left over, IRS. I would never do that. You know why? Because I'm afraid of the IRS. (laughs) They're very powerful. I think sometimes maybe I need to be a little bit more fearful of the Lord and how I deal with my money. And he says, what weariness this is, you say, and you sniff at me, says the Lord. You bring what has been taken by violence or lame or sick, and this is what you offer to me. Shall I accept this from your hand, the leftovers? See, what a weariness. This, this is referring to the preparing and offering. He's saying, you say the preparing and offering of my sacrifice is weariness. Following God's law just seems like weariness. It's like the teenagers would say today, this is boring This is too much for me. Even this little tiny bit that God has asked him to do feels burdensome. One of my favorite comedians is Brian Regan, and he talks about the time that he was in the grocery store and he saw a jar that had peanut butter and jelly in the same jar. And he said, look, I'm lazy, but I'd like to meet the guy who needs this. He's like, I could go for a sandwich, but I can't be opening two jars and who knows cleaning how many knives. And then he says, and you sniff at me. So I had to look up this Hebrew word, which what I would assume would be inhaling. Well, the translated word in Hebrew is actually snuff, which cleared it right up. Not at all. So I looked up that word. I actually had to go to Strong's Concordance. The whole thing was such a burden to me. So wearisome, right? It was actually a lot of fun. And so what this snuff word means is actually not to inhale, but to forcefully Exhale. And so have you ever given someone like a child, for example, in order to go do something, they go, that's what this word means. I once had to give an employee some feedback and she sniffed at me, rolled her eyes. Not long after that, I didn't need to hear that sound again from her because I helped her move on to another career outside our organization. (laughs) She didn't receive feedback well. She refused to change 
She sniffed. (sighs) I can't be bringing the Bethlehem. It's so hard. (laughs) So look, I think we all struggle with feedback to some extent, right? We all do. Some more than others. There are certain personality types, like mine, that are uncomfortable with receiving feedback because it feels like an attack or confrontation. These types, like me, are usually doing the best they can do to try to impress people or get other people to like them. So any kind of feedback feels like complete and total failure. I had the privilege of, I still do have the privilege of providing professional coaching service to executives and those on the path to executive leadership. And uh, one of the things I've noticed that they all seem to have in common is the desire for feedback. They crave it. They solicit it. And then the next meeting I have with them, they will report to me without me even asking them to what they did in face of what I told them and how well it worked because everything I say always works so well. (laughs) I had one guy who initially put up defensiveness. He kept defending his approach, his process, and he kept getting the same results that he didn't want. So what he would do, the way to explain that, he would blame everybody else. This is not leadership behavior (laughs) to blame everybody else. And so, in order to get him to move away from defensiveness, I had to make him uncomfortable. You see, the beginning of all change is pain or discomfort. It's not normal human functioning to be comfortable and change your position. The only time you will have moved during this sermon is if that butt cheek gets too uncomfortable, then you'll shift to something else. (laughs) All change is preceded by pain or discomfort. So I had to manage some discomfort into his life. And he finally connected the dots and began to grow and move forward and was recently promoted. I once had a coach, a mentor, who asked me a key life-changing question because he saw the defensiveness in me. And he said, Bill, what is the highest intent behind feedback or critique? So I thought about it. Then I reluctantly said, they're trying to help And he said, that's right. And then he said, just remember that. And you'll find that there's a lot of people who are going to try to help you. But if you push them back, if you become defensive, then you won't grow or learn. And I think the book of Malachi is God managing discomfort into their lives. I don't see it as much of a judgment as I want to make you uncomfortable with what you're doing so that you will grow closer to me the way I've designed it. But they were being lazy, taking the easy way out, doing the most convenient thing, that with which they were already familiar. And then we come to the 14th verse. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in the flock and vows to give it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, not an average king, the greatest, the king of kings, the Lord of hosts, and my name is reverence among the nations. So if we would go back to the second verse, God, is, God says, I have loved you, and in return, you have doubted my love. You despise me. You ignore me. You treat me as insignificant, as a passing thought, as someone who has little influence or power in your life. But I want you. You don't want me. So I want to remind us all that God loves us still. That's why I always address you as the beloved of the Lord. Because that's who you are. He has not forgotten us. 
He has been and always will be with us and is coming back soon to heal us and this planet is going to be healed. The world will not be healed. The world will pass away. He already wants to bless you. You don't need to talk him into blessing you. Rather, we need to talk ourselves out of self-dependence, out of self-preservation and walk in faith, trusting God, living in hope that God does keep his promises, thriving on love, love for God, love for one another, and even love for yourself in the way God loves you. So be a living sacrifice and allow God to transform you by the renewing of your mind. Be open. Listen to feedback and be intentional about abandoning what you've been doing and committed to a new way in trusting in God to show you what it is that is good and acceptable and perfect because he will do that. God is always close. He will give you feedback about what you need to remove from your thoughts or your behavior so you can be also close to him. So listen with humility. Give him the best of your time, the best of your energy, the best of your thoughts, the best of everything you are in your prayer and praise and in your love. Sacrifice your ego and love each other just as God has loved you. He wants to be close to you. And he's made it easy, hasn't he? He's made it easy by offering himself as his son the truly unblemished, the truly pure sacrifice in which he was well pleased. He has already made you a sweet-smelling aroma to himself. So trust him, walk in faith, and you will be pleasing to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these hard words to hear We're open to applying them into our own lives. We're open to hearing how we still have barriers that we've formed on our own unintentionally by not trusting in you, by not walking in faith with you. And we want to stop doing those things and we want to be close to you. Our hearts and minds are open to hearing your voice. Give us the strength to respond so we can stop what's not working and begin to move even closer to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.